This is Life Worlds, the place where we explore life through other eyes and minds. Let's flip the script and discover how to orient your world around nature. I'm Alexa Permanish. Come join me as we get down and forage for fungi, stalk coyotes, draft laws for rivers, hum with beehives, sing bird language, and help beavers to dam again. Let these stories spark your reconnection to nature's multiverse. Learn how to bring ecosystems back to life, become an agent for other intelligences, and begin to see how you too are the sum of all life worlds. You're listening to the full episode of Ecocentric Law with Dr. John Burrows and Lindsay Burrows. Hello, hello. Welcome to a fresh view of a life world. This week, we'll start by hearing from the wonderful daughter-father duo of Lindsay and John Burrows. Lindsay and John are lawyers and members of the Chippewas of the Nawash First Nation in Ontario, Canada, and they work to transform Canada's understanding of how Indigenous and non-Indigenous law can coexist. John created the world's first dual Indigenous law program at the University of Victoria, British Columbia, and Lindsay works to support Indigenous communities in revitalizing their traditional laws for contemporary contexts. What I personally found so astonishing about this conversation is their explanations of how Indigenous law is written in the land itself, not in books or ossified archives down in a dusty basement somewhere, but that law is written in the land, and therefore nature is the professor. As professors themselves, Lindsay and John will share with us examples of case law that brim with interspecies stories and describe to us how, in their worldview and cosmology, laws are actually verbs akin to living beings. And therefore, there are really interesting ways in how they can be used to lift up Western and colonial systems of law to create a new synthesis unlike anything that the world has ever really seen. Whether you're a lawyer or a layperson like I am, I do encourage you to look up these approaches after the show because they're coming to a courtroom near you and I hope to see you there. For now, over to Don and Lindsay Burrows in British Columbia, Canada. So John and Lindsay, welcome to Life Worlds. It's an absolute honor and pleasure to have you both here. Would you like to introduce yourselves before we get started? I'm John Boros, and from the Nawash First Nation Otter Clan, and I'm the Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Law here at the University of Victoria. Our introductions are very similar because we're both from the Otter Clan and we're both from the same place about three hours north of Toronto on the shores of Georgian Bay. And I am a lawyer and a soon-to-be law professor at Queen's University. Oh, well, it's an absolute pleasure to have you both here with us. Before we get into the really juicy part of our conversation, I would love for you guys to set the scene on your interpretation or your way of describing what Indigenous law 
is and what that term means to you before we just start using it in conversation. Indigenous law is the law that Indigenous peoples use to guide their lives. And think of law as the way that we pattern ourselves in relationship to one another and to the earth as well. And so these might be stories or rules or standards or principles or processes that help us to know how it is we can live with one another. And I would say that law is for regulating affairs and resolving disputes. And it's the standards, principles, authority, criteria, measures, guideposts, signposts that we use for regulation and resolving disputes. So these processes and principles act as a way of allowing us to interact with one another with some patterns, as Lindsay said. I was really struck when I read both of your writing. You kind of upended my definition of law, and I grew up, I mean, I'm Swiss and Swedish, so I grew up in a very sort of Western-centric model of law. And we'll get into more of that in a bit, but this idea that law is a living, animate, kind of breathing force. And I was incredibly struck, Lindsay, I read one of your theses this idea that the land is the law. And John, you bring your students into the land and in a way the, the land is the classroom. So maybe we could start there and you could explain what's meant. There was this quote, I think it came from you, John. It is based in stories written on the land, lived in ceremonies. And you said, go talk to the trees and talk to the plants and understand the language, understand the stories, the science and the treaties of nature which is a, a beautiful, beautiful phrase. So this absolutely opened my eyes to a whole new definition of what law is. Can you speak to that relationship between law and what we call, quote-unquote, nature and the land? So law in Anishinaabemun is a verb, and not konagay. Uh, 70% of Anishinaabemun is verb-based. And so law is something you do. It's something that you conjugate. And by doing it, you bring it into relationship in so many different ways and locations with different beings uh, through different times. That's what verbs do. That's what law does. And in our own legal tradition, the teachers of the law are what we find in the natural world around us. So the way a bird might behave or a watershed might interact or a a bear might manifest themselves in terms of their activities, we would look to those beings and draw analogies from those behaviors to say, what can we do as humans to learn from what we're seeing there? You know, we would talk with one another about what it is that we're seeing there. So there's a deliberative, persuasive aspect to this. And of course, sometimes we distinguish ourselves from nature. There are things that a seagull might do that we might not do. But in that way, the archive of law is literally written on the earth. And these beings like trees or plants are professors. They give us the opportunity to understand how we might live as humans in those places where they currently are. And those are our treaties, right? The idea that we would feel a sense of connection and obligation and relationship to live in accordance with what they teach us. And so when I was growing up and spending time out on the land with my family, I was taught lots of stories about these different beings, the trees and the animals, other plants. And 
for example, my dad has been known to say when a robin flies by, which is a little bird, oh, there goes a flying case. And we have a story about the robin from a time before they were a bird and they were this little boy and their father always wanted him to be the best, whether it was be the best athlete or be the best leader. And he had this vision of what he wanted the Robin, this little boy to be. And he just wanted to sing. That was his great love in life. And one day the little boy disappeared and turned into the Robin and was always around his father, but he was singing. And his father was so set in what he wanted his son to be that he never saw him again, even though he was always there. And so I think that's a real lesson for us in our relationships to be so open and accepting of who people really are. And when we see the Robin, you know, you're reminded of that teaching and then you're reminded of how you should act. And it helps you to know how to pattern yourself and how you should be living. And I was so thrilled when I became a lawyer and went to work with the Tilcotin Nation in the central region of British Columbia in Western Canada. And when we were asked to draft some laws for them, our guide, Alice Williams, said, well, we're going to need a boat and we're going to need some horses. And she took us out on the land for about a month on a pack horse trip because she knew we needed to be in relationship with that place in order to know what the laws were and how we could then teach other people those laws. Oh, gosh, I love those stories. Even the fact that 70% of your language is this kind of verb based way of seeing and understanding the world. And all of these creatures are also verbs. They're not nouns, just like we are all verbs, right? We are constantly in becoming and changing and shifting. How do you bring people into a state where they can start to read those stories of the creatures and start to understand, okay, this bear is my teacher, or this holly oak bush is my teacher, or this pine tree, or what do you do when you bring people out? Or, you know, Lindsay, what did you experience when you were that one month out with the pack courses? Especially, I think, for quote-unquote modernized folk for whom that's not always an intuitive process. And they're like, okay, that just sounds like a lot of hippy-dippy kind of stuff. And it's actually, no, this is deeply practical and it goes beyond just, you know, smelling the flowers. How do you bring people into that world? Yeah, I think that there's a number of elements that are important to bring people into this way of seeing. And they're quite anti-capitalist. I think it's slow work. You know, when you're on a horse pack trip through the mountains, a large part of your day is sitting quietly on a horse and you're just looking at what's going by and you're not making a lot of money in that moment. You know, you're not on clock time. You're in a different sense of time following the hunger cues of the horse, what's happening with the weather, How bright is it outside? What other animals are around? And if a grizzly's up ahead, what alternate path might you take? Like you're just responding to the cues in the world and in yourself. 
And that means there needs to be kind of an openness, a flexibility, a slowness, a curiosity as well, since you need to be observing and paying attention. And we've been doing this work with law students too. Since 2014, we've been taking law students out into our community for these kind of intensive law camps, we're calling them. So for those four days, the students really have permission to pause from their other classes and obligations and to be outside with us. And we invite them through story to lean into discomfort, to not feel like they need to be perfect or understand everything right away. And through the seven grandparent teachings that we have, which are principles like humility, courage, and love, and wisdom, and truth, you know, we try and say these are the ways that we can be right now, and that will help us to understand how law is flowing from this very place that we're together in right now. And I think my sense of this is is that students and people just learn differently. Some are visual, some need something sounding in their ears, some need examples, others need a sense of what the purpose is, some are more abstract. And so you need to bob and weave between different ways of approaching this question to meet people where they come from, particularly if you're in a classroom, say not in the land, you're always braiding together different possibilities recognizing that people have different entry points. So in that way, you're searching for analogies. And in that searching for analogies, sometimes people can see or resonate with what you're talking about because it connects to them in their own family life or their own sense of who they are, or it might actually even connect to the cases that we teach and the legislation that we establish. It might be related to some of their religious traditions or spiritual ways, even economically. Lindsay mentioned a second ago that it can be anti-capitalist. But of course, Indigenous peoples also have this sense of needing to sustainably live through time with a physicality, a materiality. And so we can connect to those aspects of things as well. And so there's a great opportunity across a wide range of subjects to try to be creative and bring people into where they might start to understand this journey. So can any ancient myth or folktale from a land, and I'm thinking about some in my native country of Switzerland, can any of those be translated into law in the ways that you guys understand it and practice it? Or is it very particular species and relations that over time become codified in some kind of social understanding? Or can any myth or story become a law? Yeah. So I think we always have to put the stories in their own particular context and bring honor to that way of living. And so to abstract and extract from that, there's always a caution that we have to be careful in uh, approaching and and working in relationship to that. And so sometimes that means that you can't abstract or extract and that they are their own. And in fact, in some Indigenous cultures, you can't even tell the story if you're not within a family that's received the right to that story or You can't tell it in certain times and seasons. And so, you know, there are protocols that need to be honored in expressing these. But there are other occasions where there are bridges 
between stories or between myths or between archetypes or whatever you want to call. And those bridges can give us a glimpse into that understanding of what's going on in that legal culture, because in another legal culture, there's a dimension that resonates with them. The challenge is, right, is not to carry all that baggage across the bridge back and forth. You have to be open and alive to the difference that you're encountering such that you don't think, oh, I know this because, I, you know, in my story, it goes this way. But you have to be prepared to be surprised. You know, it's like learning a language. It is the case that there's opportunity for mutual intelligibility, but there's particularities with every single language. And there's things that can't be expressed or understood unless they're given a life in their own place. And I like the idea that there's an actual legal process in different cultures or legal traditions around how to use these stories. And it varies from people to people. And it's been surprising for me to go to places where there's quite a different relationship with the stories than what we have as Anishinaabe, which tends to be more on the open side, although there is certainly rules around what to share and when to share and who to share with. But it's helpful for me to see like, this is actual legal process that's guiding when we can engage with the stories and when not. And I think that's why relationships and invitation and context, as dad said, is really important. Are there any particular stories that became translated into a form of legislation or legal process that are very kind of current or alive for you, like something that it was used in a court or used in some kind of mix of Indigenous and Crown law? Or I, I would love like an example of how we can take the story of Bear and how that was then brought into uh, something that is a lot more, I guess you would say, like in a traditional form, like uh, formal, right? Like, okay, we use this in court to reuse this for legislation. Think of the duck story. Go ahead. Oh, you tell it. <laughs> okay. Well, in our tradition, we're not only in Canada. So Anishinaabe people are in Quebec, Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan. There's even communities in Alberta and Northern British Columbia. We're also in Montana, North Dakota, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. Um, Minnesota. And so in our relatives across the border in the United States, they have tribal courts. And in those tribal courts, of course, they make decisions and they use constitutions and legislation and case law and regulations, just like conventional systems do, but they also use their stories. So there was an example of a tribal court judge who went to a funeral and on the way back from a funeral, this was personal business, he got into an accident. And then later on, he claimed through the government, the tribal government's insurance policy, that he had been on tribal business. And people said, no, you weren't on tribal business. You were actually you know, doing something personal at that time. You're committing fraud. You're attempting to commit fraud. And he said, oh, Anishinaabe people, we didn't have any such thing as fraud. That's not part of our tradition. And so you can't charge me with this. And so this went to a tribal court, and it was found that there is a crime of attempted fraud. And of course, they looked at the statutes that the community had passed, and they found that this particular community had used the laws of the state of Michigan, and they kind of cut and paste out of Michigan law and put it into their own laws. So that was one dimension. But then there was a couple of other dimensions. One in Anishinaabe, when to be a leader is to be Ogima. Ogima is like a chief or someone who counts their followers. 
And in this way that this judge was acting, he wasn't acting as we expect an Ogima to act. You can't kind of count on him if he's attempting to commit fraud. It's not something that would then cause people to follow him. But I think the best part of the case, and this was actually in the written judgment, is they talked about a story of our trickster, Nana Bojo, who was going out to get some food and saw these ducks and these geese and these mud hens swimming out in the water. And he wondered what he could do to get them. And after some thought, he kind of walked around the shore and he started building this big fire in this big lodge. And all the geese and the ducks and the mud hens were really kind of curious as to what he was doing. So eventually they swam over to him and they said, Nanabush, what are you doing there? What's going on? And he says back to them, well, I've got some songs from out west. And the ducks say, what do you mean? Well, I've got these songs that I'm wanting to sing and I'm looking forward in the evening as it falls to be able to have this great celebration. And the ducks and the geese and the munheads were all intrigued. And eventually they were waiting for an invitation, but one wasn't coming. And finally they said, can we come? Can we come to that that celebration, those songs? And Nanabush said, sure, you're, you're invited. As soon as dusk falls, please come. And so they went back into the water and Nanabush continued his work. And eventually what occurred is night fell. And as night has arrived and the ducks and the geese and the mud hens, they all jump into the shore and they all line up in front of Nanabush's lodge to be able to have this kind of celebration. As uh, they're waiting there, Nanabush looks inside his lodge and says, well, welcome. It's so good that you're here. But, you know, the wood I was cutting today is, is green. It's got a lot of smoke in it. So as you come in, I just ask that you close your eyes. I don't want you to be harmed. I don't want you to feel like you're stinging in those regions. Um, so please come in, but just keep your eyes closed. And so the ducks and the geese and the manhen agree, and they come into the lodge, and Nanabojo starts drumming and starts singing. And as he's doing so, the ducks and the geese and the mud hens, eyes closed, start dancing around the lodge. As uh, that occurs, there's a lot of, of course, energy and a lot of sound, and it's a really beautiful thing. But as this is going on, what happens is as a duck passes in front of Nanabush, he might grab their neck, twist it, and throw it into the bag after breaking their neck. And, you know, he's trying to get a feast uh, as a part of this. And the ducks and the geese and the mud hens aren't quite aware as to what's going on until the sound gets quieter and quieter. There's not as many ducks singing. And one of these little birds opens their eyes and says, oh, no, Nanabush is killing us. Let's escape. And so they all escape and out they go at the door. Um, Well, Nanabush is just really chagrined. He's upset. He's lost a lot of his meal. He's feeling really as he's always kind of tired and grumpy. But in this moment, he's just feeling vexed. But after a while, he kind of lifts this bag and he realizes he's got a number of geese, ducks, and mud hens, and so he starts to prepare them for a meal. And what he does is he sets them out all on the beach. He buries them in the sand by the fire, because if you can bury these geese in the sand by the fire, they will warm, they'll cook, the flesh will get such that they can eventually eat it. But it has been a lot of work for Nanabojo, right? He's made this lodge, he's built this fire, he's had this performance, he's prepared all of these roasting sites for the duck, and he's tired, he wants to fall asleep. And he's ready to fall asleep, and then he realizes that, oh, someone might come along and get this. And so what he does is he um, puts his butt in charge of watching over (laughs) this (laughs) feast that's uh, roasting in the ground. 
and he goes to sleep. Well, he's sleeping, and as he's sleeping, his uh, butt tries to wake him. <laughs> and he, he's really annoyed, saying, oh, I'm so tired. What are you doing? Why are you trying to wake me? I've worked all day. And he sort of shifts in his sleep. And then this happens again. His butt tries to wake him, and he doesn't know quite what to do. And so he just you know, says, oh, forget it. Just go to sleep. Forget it. And as he's doing this, in fact, all of these others have come along, and they're busy digging out all of the ducks and the geese and the mud hen in the sand, and they're making off with it. But they realize that if Nanabush wakes up again, they need to make it look as though no one's been there. And so they leave the duck legs feet up in the sand. And so, you know, if he opens his eyes, he thinks it's all okay. Well, you know, he sleeps for quite a while, and all of these geese and ducks and mud hens are now gone, and he eventually awakes. And as he awakes, he reaches into the sand because he's hungry, and he pulls out one of these legs, and he's so thrilled. He says, oh, it's so tender. It comes right off the bone. He's really looking forward to this meal, but there's, of course, not much meat on a little duck leg. And so he digs for the rest of the bird. There's nothing there. And he's upset. Maybe I just forgot what I was doing. But he starts digging around to all of these other birds. There's nothing there. And he realizes that someone's made off of all his geese and his duck and his mud hens. And, you know, he's not quite fully rested. And he's also very hungry. And so he says to his butt, I thought I told you to wake me and you weren't as helpful as you should be. So I'm going to punish you. <laughs> and so what he does is he puts his butt on the fire and it starts to burn and it starts to bubble and boil with this. You know, it's just a terrible situation. He says, you can cry all you want, but you didn't do what you should do. Um, you didn't protect all of these geese and these ducks and these mud hens. And so, uh, of course, that's uh, a painful thing. And he doesn't realize his connection there. And eventually stands up and he's wandering along the beach and he's going this way and that way, a little bit delirious. Of course, he's very hungry, not fully rested. And when he um, sort of eventually wanders back on his own tracks, he gets afraid. He says, oh, there's all this blood here. What's this? And he doesn't recognize that it's his own blood. And then some of that blood has gone into the willow trees. And those intestines are in the willow trees. And so when we see the willow trees, that's one of those analogies to this story. Now, let me take you back. I know this is a long story. <laughs> in the case, what happened is the court said, you, judge, have been like Nana Bojo. You're expecting to put yourself in charge of your own self. right? In this case, he put his butt in charge of himself. There was no checks and balances there. It wasn't a proper system of oversight. And of course, what the court said is that you've burned yourself by attempting to take money that wasn't connected to your employment. Uh, you're acting like Nana Bojo here. You're being very foolish. Uh, you're causing all of this harm to come around us. I was at a conference a couple of years ago where a woman told this story, Cree Métis woman, Maria Campbell, to a room full of maybe 120 judges. All of the Indigenous peoples there who are Cree and Blackfoot and uh, Anishinaabe knew what that story was. And we were laughing and thinking, you know, what the meaning is. And all the judges were confused. <laughs> How is this law? But it is law again, because here are these standards, principles, authority, criteria, measures for regulating affairs and resolving disputes. Why that decision is persuasive is because, of course, it draws on the statute. Of course, it draws on our language, but it also shows a set of behaviors that's inappropriate, you know, putting yourself in charge of yourself, trying to get something to sustain yourself by trickery, 
by harm, by ruse, right? He wasn't treating these ducks with respect. He wasn't treating these ducks in a way that you would hope to live in a good and respectful life with them. And this is what the judge was doing in regard to his fellow citizens by trying to take money when it wasn't connected to his official duties. So he's acting like Nana Bojo. He's acting like a trickster. He's disrespecting the community, just as Nana Bush was disrespecting the community when he was taking those ducks in the way that he did. And so to be welcomed into this world of story then is to understand the, as Lindsay said earlier, the ways that we pattern life in a legal sense. There's obligations, there's entitlements, there's expectations. It's not just a free-for-all in that way. I didn't grow up in a culture that brought me into the ways that these other beings have these lessons for us. And my life has been a process of tutelage of the living world to try and understand. And what strikes me is I'm, I'm placing myself in the most you know, simple way that I can into the shoes of people who are growing up. My father, by the way, was co- always called me his petit canard, his little duckling. So it's really sweet that he chose a duck story. That would make him so happy. But I'm placing myself in the stories where like, okay, I I see the duck and the duck is constantly mirroring back to me this lesson. And then I look at the willow tree and it's another lesson. And, you know, just a walk in the forest or sitting by the lake, it's meaning is embedded in every stone and in every single thing that you see. And this is actually changing my definition of what it means to have an animate earth because it's not just, okay, other beings are deeply alive and have their own stories and their own agencies, their own ways of being, but also through their ways of beings and stories and wisdom and animacy, they've taught us stories that are then reflecting. So the world is alive, always, always, always reflecting. And then what's also really fascinating about you sharing this case is certain cultures will then have agreed upon stories that you just have to invoke a name. And a whole association is encapsulated in this one name that's then used in court. And I was like, yeah, you're just like that person. And you're like, oh shit, like, yes, I am. And so it's also a really elegant way to, as you said, patterns or protocols to kind of structure a society because the meaning is embedded in these tales, but it's it's one word and you've been raised with it and you've encountered the emotion of shame or of joy or whatever that word entails. So yeah, I just, I have incredible fascination for what you're sharing. I don't know, Lindsay, if you wanted to comment something, but. <laughs> I love how you reflected that back, Alexa. And it's true because it's like, oh, tell the duck story. And then 20 minutes later, <laughs> it's like, oh, and that's the duck story. But when you're in it, you know, without needing to do all that work, because it's been told to you so many times. And what I find fascinating too, just as you said, You can walk through the forest and then you see that willow, you see the robin, you see the ducks, and these things come to your mind. But of course, the details of our life is always changing and what we need help with is always changing. And the stories are so alive. And again, the laws are so alive. In different moments, new things speak to you from that story and from that being. And so there's this phrase that jam is for preserving and traditions are for living. And so in that, you know, our traditions are not just something to hold tight to from the past, but they're always going to be changing and speaking to us in new ways. And I've really seen that in my life as I've continued to grow and change. And the earth has been continuing to grow and change as well. And together, we kind of speak to each other in our newness as well as our oldness. 
Is there something that's uh, very current for you right now that you'd like to share that's an example of that? Yes. Let's see. It's the end of March and nettle season, stinging nettle season has been going on on Vancouver Island where I live for the last month. And so every week I've been going out to harvest these stinging nettles. And sometimes I go by myself, sometimes I go with my friend. And then one time I went with my almost three-year-old daughter. And as I was out with the nettles, you know, you have to wear gloves when you're harvesting stinging nettles because otherwise they sting you, as the name would suggest. And I am trying to teach my almost three-year-old about the honorable harvest. And she frequently goes along and will, you know, pull flowers out of the ground and then sort of toss them and go on to the next thing. And it's quite a learning process for a child to know how to be respectful. And so when I was with my daughter out harvesting these nettles, she for about five minutes was like, mom, here's some more nettle friends. Oh, and here's another patch of nettle friends. And then she got bored and went off to play at the playground. So she's in the playground and I'm harvesting these nettles. And then she falls in a mud puddle. And so she's filthy. And it's before daycare. We're doing this in the morning. And then I think, oh, well, that's part of the fun of playing outside. And then I keep harvesting. She keeps playing. And then a few minutes later, she has to go to the bathroom. And so I give up and we walk to the daycare and I knock on the daycare door and her daycare worker opens and here's my child who's like filthy, covered in mud and has to go to the bathroom immediately. And because of COVID, parents aren't allowed into the daycare, so I can't help. (laughs) So I just leave this child with them. And now I'm thinking about these nettles and the way that I protect myself from their stings and these kind of barriers I put on with my gloves. And here I am with my child and she's out in the world and I'm trying to protect her. And there's messiness that's there. And sometimes the way I am with her means that it's a bit harder for other people to interact with her. And nettles, often when I cook them, for whatever reason, they still end up stinging my mouth a little bit because I don't quite cook them long enough. Even after they've been drying for like a month, I still touch them and their stingingness still remains a little bit. And so it's just really had me thinking about the ways that I'm just like the nettle. There's ways to remove my sting, but sometimes it just almost feels impossible. And maybe the goal is more about finding the grace to myself and forgiveness to myself or to others that we too are always stinging each other as much as we try not to. And yet we have nourishment as well and medicine. I love that story. And it makes me wonder if we can, you know, you have this experience now with the nettle in this way that it's bringing you this teaching, but it sounds like you're uncovering a law or a lesson. And you said before, like it's living, it's changing, it's adapting. Do you guys find in your line of work that new protocols and new laws are being brought into action, for lack of a better word? Can you discover a law? (laughs) Yeah, that's a great question. Yes, you do discover law as well as it's being there already. Lindsay talked about this, but tradition could be the dead faith of living people or the living faith of dead people. 
And so for some of us, tradition is the dead faith of us who are living because we kind of put tradition back there somewhere and want to preserve it. But I think the goal is to make it the living faith of dead people that is contemporary. And as a contemporary tradition, then it does adapt and change and other things come in, even as you're being faithful to its roots, trying to make sure that those roots are in good soil and can be you know, strengthened through time. But there's new branches that are thrown out, new possibilities that are there. I see this in particular, Lindsay mentioned these seven grandmother or grandfather teachings that are our constitutional law, um, love, wisdom, humility, honesty, truth, respect, courage. And it's really hard to find those in the historic record, but you walk into most any Anishinaabe school and you will see these uh, on blackboards and across tops of walls. There's about 43 constitutions that are being drafted in Ontario that are Anishinaabe, and you see them in the preamble of these constitutions, or you see them in the clauses of constitutions. Um, There's all sorts of policy documents that front the seven grandmother and grandfather teachings. Um, It's always been there, the idea of love and honesty and courage and humility, etc. But it's being organized in a way now that people can bring greater prominence to it. Um, It's a way of digesting it. It happens to connect to our seven directions, which is a helpful way of memory device that we bring forward. But it's really exciting to see that law can change, can adapt, and can even spring anew in this case. Um, Yes, there's a connection to the past, but boy, the way that this has taken off from all of those places I was mentioning to earlier on both sides of the border is quite phenomenal. I'd love to ask you, John, about your students, because the degree that you've created and set up, along with a few others, is kind of one of the world's first of its kind. I believe it is the world's first Indigenous law degree and Canada's first joint program in law. What do your, and it's a few years in now, so you probably have a better answer for this than you would have had a few years ago. What can your students go on to expect to do in the Canadian legal system? Like, What are the repercussions very tangibly for Canadian law at this also very decisive moment in time. Yes. So you're right that we have at the University of Victoria the world's first Indigenous law degree. It's a JID, a Juris Indigenous Doctorate. And the students get that at the same time as they get a JD, which is a Juris Doctorate. So they get a joint degree, two degrees. And the work that they're doing is, of course, in the classroom, but also in community. And when they graduate, and our first cohort is just graduating now, they're clerking at federal courts of appeal and tax courts and provincial courts. They're working as apprenticing lawyers. We have an articling process here in Canada that they'll be participating in with big firms, small firms. Uh, They've worked in community settings in their, their summer periods with our Indigenous Law Research Unit and There's a West Coast environmental law group out of Vancouver that's a law firm that practices in communities and bringing that law out in that way. So there's many dimensions. Uh, They could work in a corporate setting as well, I suppose, trying to bring those insights to bear. But what we hope is two other things, that they start to recognize that this is something they can also walk around inside them with, that it's not just the value of how you might provide advice, say, to a judge or a lawyer or a community, but how are you in your relationships with the broader world? And then how are you with the common law, right? Because the idea is we're not just trying to revitalize Indigenous law, but this brings a new lens to the common law. 
if you start to see the common law as also a cultural construct, because you've learned it in comparison and contrast with Indigenous laws, you see where the choices are in the common law. It's no longer just a universal, taken for granted, this is the way things are done. You see, for instance, in the Cree law, that there's a duty to protect and step in if someone is being harmed. Whereas in Canadian criminal law, that duty doesn't exist. And so, in other words, we hope that it's not just about giving opportunity for Indigenous law to flourish and for people to hopefully live more mindful lives internally in relationship to Indigenous law, but also to see the common law as something that can also be more responsive because we see the decision points that are there, things that might be otherwise taken for granted or assumed now are suddenly alive in your mind because you recognize that there is a choice there and you might not recognize that without having that trans-systemic or comparative or pluralistic experience. Can you imagine in the next few years, some of these more entrenched or ossified traditional Canadian laws would be up for questioning or for changing, and maybe stories could be brought into them or some of these fundamental principles like the seven ones that you just shared? Yes, it's already happening. We see this in environmental law, in criminal law, intellectual and cultural property, family law. There's many different areas that this is starting to just be seeded into, and the first sprouts are growing there. And so I just see that as expanding in time. It's not a panacea. It's not going to be something that is taken up in all places and times. I like the analogy that my mother taught me about when I was a kid. We would be baking together on the side of the sink, and she'd put all these dry ingredients together, the flour and the sugar and the salt and soda, etc. And I was just you know happy to be with her there. But she'd take this little grain, yeast, and she said, if we put this little grain in here, that's going to make a difference to the rest of the mixture. And it's going to change what it's going to look like when it comes out on the other end. It's going to cause everything else to raise. And sometimes I think that is what we're doing, just putting little grains in here and there. And it's not that everyone has to learn Indigenous law, but if it's there in sufficient quantities, those little grains, I think it will have an effect on other parts of the system, on the other way that people interact. And so it's, I think, as Lindsay said, a process of invitation, a process of finding relation. And this is then with invitation and relationship, like the yeast, it's more often unseen and and reactive in ways that you can't always predict. And I think that provides me some comfort because that means that there's space for so many ways to be involved here. But with our involvement in our space, there's a chance for something to grow. And if people bring their other points of view from other walks of life, hopefully the space that's created from what's growing with Indigenous peoples and Indigenous law might you know, allow other uh, dimensions to be a part of the way we make decisions, which is about law, right? Making decisions, finding patterns for living. And what I love about this example is the rising, how the yeast lifts everything up. And I think there's a real fear held by some people in Canada that if Indigenous law is operating, then it will take away from them. It is something that would might be a threat that might bring in greater uncertainty or kind of a lawlessness in, in bringing in this new law. But the work we're trying to do is to show that's not the case 
at all. And in fact, this is something that can lift everyone up. It has that potential to speak beyond the borders of individual communities and speak more to the entire kind of legal ecology of this country. Yeah, I uh, lived in BC for three months, so a very short period of time, but experienced in conversations these dynamics. And I think like anything that involves healing or inner work, it can also be painful. And I think that certain people are scared to face up to a way that they've been living that's maybe been out of harmony with the natural order of things. So, I mean, I entirely share your perspective. These kinds of laws can only enhance and raise everyone's way of being. But there's that interim period where it's really challenging to entrench worldview that you've held or maybe an extractive relationship towards nature that in your heart of hearts, in your soul, somewhere deep, deep down, you're not content with or maybe your kid isn't content with. And so I think it's also a really essential provocation that will be done, I can imagine, with a lot of kindness and a lot of care, but it seems like an essential transition that a lot of countries have to go through. That's right. And part of that transition is then also recognizing Indigenous law itself is continuing to be learned. You know, Indigenous peoples, of course, are beautiful peoples, but like other peoples, we're also messed up. <laughs> and that's the case historically. And that's we're like stained metals. That's right. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and so we have to recognize that there's not perfection within Indigenous communities, that there are many things that we need to continue to address on our own to do that kind of healing as well. And what I like about that is that we're then within humanity as opposed to being these romantic people of the forest or these kind of savages that are just needing to be put aside, right? That there's a fullness to seeing Indigenous law as a part of what humans are trying to do to live better. And sometimes we get it right and sometimes we make mistakes. And, you know, just as in our broader legal traditions, when we make mistakes, those are open to be corrected and to find ways to do that properly with the checks and balances as opposed to the Nanabush approach, which is tricks and ruse and disrespect and covering up and that kind of thing. So there's so much there to both celebrate and then also be self, I don't know what the word is, reflective, I suppose, and say, oh, I, I, we need to do better as Anishinaabe people or Haida people, not just Canadians need to do better, not just whoever needs to do better. We've got our work cut out for us as well. But these are the patterns and the principles that can help us do that work. And when we're in conversation with other legal cultures, there are things we learn from them too, that we could take on board and say, that's not inconsistent. That actually strengthens us to take that insight, say like that attempted fraud law from Michigan that that Anishinaabe community did in that setting. So it's not always an either or, you can find some places for joining together. Weaving. Weaving, yeah. It really, really strikes me that the model that you're bringing into the world or that is being brought into the world, because it's obviously been around for so long, is an incredibly healing modality. I mean, it will impulse a lot of inner work. It will impulse a lot of societal work. And this kind of blend of humility and pride that people need to have when they're exercising, coming into contact with different cultures and ways of being. You have to be proud of what you have and come to the table with something that you believe can be additive, like your ingredients by the sink. But you also have to be incredibly humble to have your worldview kind of shifted. 
on that note, Lindsay, before we close, I really want to talk a little bit about your book because a lot of what we talk about on Life Worlds is how we can learn from other species or learn from the land. And your book is an animate book. It has a lot of animism in it. I mean, this otter, she is swimming across these different geographies and across seven different places in British Columbia, Minnesota, and New Zealand, and Nunavut. And obviously, it's echoing your story, right? And how you travel to these places. And in all of these realms, she's encountering communities that are revitalizing their law and their language and facing a lot of these challenges, I guess, of how does a society shift and change and adapt. And even within a society itself, there's very different approaches to how we revitalize things. And so there is a few quotes I'd love to pull out from your book that were incredibly moving. There is also beautiful descriptions, like that story where the sea otter is looking into the clamshell and it's this magic surrealism. It's very kind of trippy. I didn't mean to start there, but I'm going to go there. Like the syllables grew, forming themselves into people. So just this idea that like language is so animate and alive and it takes physical form. It reminds me of some of Robert Bringhurst's work on poetry is not man-made, it's an aspect of existence. It was here before there were humans to think it into being. Your book had a lot of that in it. And you describe how these syllables look sorrowful. Some had eyes, some were drooping and none realized that they were inside of a clamshell or inside of sea otter's vision, or in the midst of language's creation. So I'd love to ask you, what does it mean, this idea that language is a living being, and that a tongue or a language is healthier when it's connected to the heart, which is what you've written in the book, and laws, when they're written on the heart, are also stronger. So I'd love to, I mean, we don't have enough time to go into so many of the lessons in your book, but particularly that piece on language being alive and being in the heart, and how that enlivens a society. Thank you for that beautiful question. And it's one of the experiences I had in my early 20s as an undergraduate student in New Hampshire was I went on an exchange term to New Zealand, Aotearoa. And while I was there, I had the opportunity to learn from one of the leading linguists and proto-Polynesian languages. And I was so excited to meet him. And when I met him, I was not disappointed. He was so kind and generous and intelligent. And I asked him, so which of the Polynesian languages do you feel most fluent in and most native in or an affinity towards? And he said, oh, I don't actually speak any Polynesian languages. And I was so surprised that here the leading linguist in this language family doesn't speak a single one of them. And I've reflected on that a lot because he had an incredible fluency in the structure of the language in kind of an external way. He could look at it or hear it and phonetically know what those different sounds did to a word. Does it make it small or big? Does it make it feminine or masculine, animate or inanimate? Does it add a color to it? Like he knew that so well, but yet couldn't manipulate it all together to speak it with any living person. And I think the way many of us who have maybe learned a second language on maybe an app on our phone or Rosetta Stone, that experience is so different from going to a country and immersing yourself and sort of learning from people, learning from being out in specific places 
And the words that come to you are the ones that make sense in that place and with those people. And there's a real kind of heart element to that way of learning language. And I see law is very similar, where when you go to law school, so much of what you're learning seems like you're just learning the structure of how a society works. But you can walk away and not really know how to speak to people with a fluency of kind of how we're patterning our lives with one another. And I think Indigenous legal traditions come from a bit of a different place sometimes. As, as we've said, you know, Indigenous law is many different things. So I want to be careful not to say it's just this one thing. There are externalized elements too. But the way that it can help us to internalize is so powerful. And just kind of one final story from this was a few years ago, I was working with the Shtatlian Nation which is a neighboring nation of the Tsilkotin, also in the interior of British Columbia. And my co-worker, Helen Copeland, a wonderful Stadlium educator, was working on their constitutional drafting project. And so they had been gathering community members together, having big feasts, bringing in experts and really trying to craft this law that could speak to who they are as Stadlium. And at one point, Helen thought, you know, no one's going to read this. We need to make a song. And so she got together the different drummers and singers, and they made a constitution song. And so if we think about that, you know, there are so many ways that we can take these kind of externalized laws and find methods and tools to bring them inside of us so that we can be singing from those places and speaking from those places instead of just having to sit down with our computers or a book, which can be wonderful too. I love doing that, but it's not the only way. That's a beautiful example. Uh, we had a scientist come on a little while ago called Tara Martin, who you guys probably know, and she was sharing how they used art with different communities in British Columbia and elsewhere to make the science come alive and this kind of biodiversity science. And so I'm struck by the parallels between, you know, science, law. Everyone's like, gosh, that's, you know, that's kind of the stodgy, boring stuff. It's so analytical. And like, no, like this is what we've made it into. But you can make a constitution into a song. You can make a, a deeply practical legal lesson into a story that is embedded in the land. And our time has flown by. I had so many more questions. Uh, John, I think it was you because I put all your quotes in one place together. I'm not sure which one came from what, but I think this came from you and you said, it's not just lawyers and judges who practice law. We can all practice law and we can do that by reconnecting people to their places. Was, was that you, Lindsay, or was it John? Yeah, it was John. Okay, good. And he said, we can do that by reconnecting people to their places. And so on a very practical earthly matter, day to day, what can people do who are listening to this to connect to their place through this lens of law or natural law or indigenous law? Like where can people get started if they can't come to, you know, BC and take a degree? What's the lowest hanging fruit that they could just start bunching on? Yeah. Well, I think one of the lessons is, is there's many places to start because there's many ways in. But my sense is understanding through observation and immersion what that robin is doing in the nest that's building its place for its young, 
or what's happening with the procession of life as it's coming out of the earth from seed to bud to flower. That is finding in a place that's just outside your door, a set of relationships and then wondering into those relationships, how are they organized and what is their structure? What helps them? What gets in their way? And then start thinking, how am I like them? Or how might my community be like them? And then talk to someone about it. (laughs) And then as you do that, you're in a practice of deliberation and persuasion and reflection. It's bringing the social dimension into law at that point. And if you find something that's there as you're talking with someone about how you could bring it into your life or distinguish yourself as the case might like, you know, I'm not like that because of this reason, that allows you to live those treaties, which are with the natural world that can teach us something about who we are. And then, of course, you could read about these plants or you can talk to people who are local or maybe farmers or gardeners that have experience with it. Uh, You know, there's ways that you can build out from there. But the immediacy is just go, be outside, find a place of connection and build from that opportunity. And I think you'll be surprised because even if you're in an urban setting, you'll be like, oh, there's little mosses growing here. Or, oh, there's this tree that someone planted that isn't native to here, but look how it's growing. Or, oh, I've never noticed that there's a bird sound out there because I usually have in my headphones. And that idea of opening your eyes, your ears, your nose, maybe your touch and sense of taste, and for a few minutes a day, just really sitting in that sensory space where you find yourself in the world can remind you who you are and how you can be in better relationship with those around you. That's such wonderful advice. It's slow. You have to respond to cues. You have to have openness and curiosity. And all of these qualities are, I think, little doorways in to to what you're describing. Any last words you'd like to share before we close off or anything that was bubbling up that I didn't ask? I really enjoyed that conversation and learned so much hearing from you. Yes, thank you. Well, John and Lizzie, thank you both so very much. And I'm looking forward to having you come on again where we can talk a little bit more because there is a lot more that I would have loved to get into. Happy to do it again at some time. Don't you just love the metaphor of how a grain of yeast can raise the whole system? I'm really excited to follow the developments of the First Nations laws in Canada because I think they're setting a precedent that many other parts of the world can look to emulate. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast and stay tuned for a fresh Life Worlds episode coming out in two weeks' time where we'll be going into the multi-species entanglements that you can find yourself in in our planet. I would love to hear from you, so please reach out to me on the lifeworlds.earth website where you can also find all of the show notes and an open source library ranging on everything from ecology to technology and life at large. Subscribe to the email list and I'll see you back here soon. Bye.